we thank you for this time. We thank you for this moment. We thank you for the promise that you will speak. So we pray that you would open our eyes to see you, open our ears to hear you, open our hearts to know you like never before. And even before you do it, God, we say thank you. Thank you, God, for your mercy and your love that allows us to dwell in your presence together. In Jesus' name we pray that all God's people say Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Can we give the Lord thanks and praise for this amazing music ministry? You guys are amazing. Amazing. Thank you so much. It is truly an honor and a blessing to be back with you again, UPC. I am so delighted that I get to know Seattle through you. I mean, people come here all the time for all kinds of touristy things. All I know that matters in Seattle is UPC. I'm pretty convinced this is the reason why people need to come to this city. So I am so excited and delighted to be here with you again. I'm very grateful that my dear friend, Reverend Jessica Johnson, has come to hang out with me this weekend. We've been friends since college. Are there any college students here? Any college students? Oh, okay, woo woo, I heard one someplace. <laughs> Just a note, your friends in college really can go with you for the rest of your life, so choose wisely. No pressure. But I thank God for our friendship, for our sisterhood. Thank you so much for being here today. And I'm so grateful for my family that's watching online. My husband, Mark Martin, was here with us the last time I was here. And I am so grateful. He is a faithful, amazing, fantastic man of God, who, by the way, I heard from my kids, ate spinach dip for breakfast this morning. So, you know, when mom's out, all kinds of things happen. They get Slurpees. They get, like, ice cream. They don't have vegetables. And then when I come home, then it's a big deal. Like, oh, man, we have to have broccoli. Well, whose fault is that? <laughs> So I thank God they're watching right now. Yes, children, we shall have broccoli when I get home. <laughs> but we've got two amazing daughters. I have a 10-year-old, Addison. She's in the fifth grade. She's like early, like preteens, which is freaking me out a little bit. You know, like when you get to the stage and, I, you know, they walk in the door and I say to Addie, oh my gosh, how was school? How are your friends? Are you okay? Wasn't that so much fun? She's like, it's good. And I'm like, oh Lord, how many more years of this? How am I gonna do this? So we find fun things to do together because she is brilliant and amazing and she's a leader and she's probably holding it down the whole household because she knows everything at 10 years old. Um, so pray for me. I also, thank God I have an eight-year-old, um, Josephine. And Josie is in the third grade, and she is also amazing. She is joyful, Josie. Her laugh is just absolutely contagious. So we have to remind her of her joy when she wants to have tantrums, which are just, you know, like I thought every age, every age, I'm like, they'll grow out of it at two. They'll grow out of it at four. Please, parents, tell me that there's a stage where children do grow out of a tantrum. And then when I have a tantrum myself, I'm like, I will grow out of this. I will grow out of this. 
but I thank God they're watching right now. And so thank God for the joy of technology. I also thank God for your pastor, for Pastor George, for this phenomenal pastoral staff that you have. Thank you all for your service to the Lord. This morning, I confess to you that um, there were many sermons that I wanted to preach. Secrets of a preaching of a traveling preacher. Secret number one, you always have your backup good one. Always. You know, the one that like makes you feel good, makes people feel good. You're like, if all, if all else fails, I'll preach that one. Right, Reverend Aaron? Always have that one. And then, and then you've got your stretch sermon that's like, you know, I'm kind of working through it, but I think it'll be okay. And then there's God's sermon. And God's sermon always takes you out of your habit, always takes you out of your comfort zone. And God's sermon always has a way of preaching to you. So today we preach God's sermon. And I want to confess to you, I'm a little nervous because I think that God wants to do something in us that maybe, maybe he's never done before. I believe God wants to do something in us that maybe God has never done before. And with that, let's go to the word of God. This is the gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And I'm going to read the New Living Translation. It's a great translation to read if you're looking for something that's very simple and understandable. Mark, chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Then Jesus told them, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. As we journey together for a few moments this morning, I want to preach from the topic, unlearning Jesus. Unlearning Jesus. They thought they knew him. They walked where he walked. They spoke like he spoke. They grew up like he grew up. They went to the same markets that he did and ate the same foods and played the same childhood games as everyone else. He was a product of their hometown. They would tell stories about him from when they were little, like maybe the time when he climbed the neighbor's tree or maybe the way he chased the sheep being led into the countryside or maybe the day he learned to carve his first plank of wood. They thought they knew him. In a town with anywhere from 500 to 2,000 people, everyone literally knew everyone in Nazareth. They took pride in knowing the intimate details of the people residing in their space. They were a close-knit community, and nothing was kept secret. They knew the scandal of Mary's pregnancy. They remembered when Jesus was left behind in the temple. They were there when Joseph died. They thought they knew him, but they didn't. They didn't know him 
at all. When Jesus left Nazareth, everything changed. He found new people to hang with. He traveled to new places. He adopted new customs. He even began doing things that no one else had done. And when he came back to his hometown, when he returned to the place of his familiar, the people that thought they knew him didn't know him at all. Even worse, they didn't know that they didn't know Jesus. Rather than to take time to hear about what had happened and where he'd been and what he had done, rather than to get to know Jesus better, the people of Nazareth refused to let go of the man they once knew. Being unable to let go of their preconceived notions of Jesus, they were kept from receiving the fullness of who he really was. Because of their grasp on what was, and because of their control of what had always been, they couldn't receive anything new that Jesus wanted to do. Because of this stubborn ability to only see what was, they missed a chance to see what they had never seen before. They'd become so familiar with Jesus that the text says they started to resent him. They were so familiar with him that they didn't even want to know the full range of what he could do. In some ways, they were probably so comfortable in the things that were and in the ways that things were that they weren't ready to, bring, to receive the disruption that Jesus could bring. They'd gotten so used to going to the synagogue each week, hearing the words of God and leaving the exact same way they came. They got used to hearing about God without actually expecting God to show up. They got used to songs that didn't sanctify relationships, that didn't redeem hymns, that did not heal and offerings that offered no hope. They got used to seeing church as the thing that you do and the place that you go right before you have brunch. Started to see praise as just a way to pass the time on a Sunday and believe that worship really wasn't worth much at all. They were so familiar with Jesus they were so comfortable with Jesus that they could not receive the miracles that were waiting for them. You see, there's a, a thin line between familiarity and unbelief. And, and there are times when we can become so familiar with someone that we actually stop believing in them and we don't even realize it. We can become so familiar that we stop expecting people we know to do anything apart from anything they've done before. Like partners in a long-term relationship, we can easily find comfort in the predictability of another. When you've known someone for a long time, it's comforting to know that you can anticipate his or her next move. When you know someone well, you can guess the kind of food they want before they're even hungry. You can anticipate their reaction to things before they even happen. You can predict what they'll say before they even say it. Familiarity leads to predictability. And if we're not careful, predictability can lead to doubt. And doubt left unchecked can become a seed of unbelief. And before you know it, the person with whom we are most familiar is the person we doubt the most. The person we think we know so well can be the very person we cease to believe. In some cases, you know, a husband can be so familiar with his wife that he stops believing that she'll start the business. 
Wife can be so familiar with her husband that she doesn't believe him when he says he's going to write that book. Children can be so familiar with their parents that they don't believe their parents will do anything out of the ordinary. And Christians, Christians, we can become so familiar with Jesus that we don't even realize we've stopped believing in him. Sometimes we have to unlearn what we think we know about Jesus in order to get to know who Jesus really is. Because when we think we know him, we might set ourselves up for Christian predictability, which would slowly lead to a cascade of doubt. I was convicted of this on multiple occasions, but one most recently was earlier this year, around February, with the Asbury Revivals. I had conversations with lots of friends, and we would pride ourselves on our skepticism. Why call it a revival? Theologically and orthodoxically, I mean, is it really a revival if nothing changes? It's kids, and they're having a great time in worship. It's the overflow of the Spirit. Let's not make a big deal. And then a friend of mine who lived in Kentucky called me and told me what he experienced. And he wept. He did not weep because the worship was so beautiful alone. He didn't weep because he saw thousands of young people pouring their hearts out for God. He wept because of his unbelief. And he said, God forbid the day when people in ministry stop believing that God can do the impossible. And I wept and still weep today because I confess to you, I also have unbelief. How many times have I stood before platforms and opened my mouth and not expected God to show up? How many times have I gotten on my knees and prayed that God would make a way only to stand up and make my plans? How often have I entered into the sanctuary already thinking about what was happening after worship got out? I believe that God wants to show us who he really is. I want to be like Paul, to say I want to know him in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his suffering, because to know Jesus is enough. I want to be positioned where all I want is the presence and the power of God, where I might seek his heart and not constantly reach for his hand. And I believe God is trying to raise up a generation who will push the church in that direction. And I can say to you at this 1045 service that God is doing something miraculous and powerful in the next generation. In Gen Z and in Gen Alpha, we are seeing a hunger and a thirst for God like never before. But if there is no church that believes that God can show up, if there is no altar that believes that when you fall here, you will fall before the feet of God, if there is no word that can speak power into their lives, then they will turn to other places. They will go to other things. They will believe other hypes. But in this time, 
God wants us to know him like we've never known him before. In this season, I believe God wants to reveal himself, not only as the one who is the word, but the one who works his word in power. Not only as the one who used to do miracles, but as God who works miracles today. Not only as the one who provided for our ancestors, but as God who provides and heals and delivers for us today God is calling us to know him and what a beautiful invitation we have but might I suggest the only way we can really get to know him is if we unlearn what we think we know (laughs) sometimes you've got to unlearn what you think you know so that you can be open to learn what God wants you to know and perhaps this is exactly what our text is teaching us today Jesus made his way. He was literally on a miracle crusade. He was going from town to town, healing and delivering and setting people free. He was going from place to place and from city to city, doing what people had never seen before. And then he entered Nazareth. And the Bible tells us he could do no miracles there because of their unbelief. And I connect with the people of Nazareth because sometimes my unbelief keeps me from being a candidate for God's miracles. But I want to know, is there anybody who says no more? I don't want to be callous anymore. I don't want to be distant anymore. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And so perhaps the text tells us if we really want to know who Jesus is, The first thing we can do is acknowledge what we don't know about him. We can acknowledge what we don't know about him. Jesus began teaching with the rabbis in the synagogue, and the people were at first amazed. And then the more they witnessed it, they were offended. And the reason for their offense was the fact that they believed that Jesus was acting like somebody he wasn't. How dare he? Stand up and act like a rabbi. You see, in in the pathway of becoming a rabbi, they had to be apprenticed or they had to learn under a very formidable rabbi. In order to stand like a rabbi, you had to be trained by one. And the only way you could be trained by a rabbi is if you had enough money to send your son to be trained or if you had some family connection or some other connection of influence that allowed your young son to become an apprentice. But they knew Jesus. They knew that he did not come from wealth. They knew his father was just a carpenter. They literally said, he's just a carpenter's son. They knew Mary. They knew that her lineage did not afford her any connection to a rabbi. They knew his siblings and they understood that family. How dare Jesus stand up and operate with authority? How dare he? try to tell us about the word of God. They thought that they knew his siblings, but they didn't recognize his siblings were not the ones that were born in his family. His siblings were the ones who believed in him. They saw his siblings and refused to see the disciples who were literally sitting in the synagogue with him. They saw his mother, but they did not see his father because they refused to recognize that he is the son of God. Because they were so um, bent on holding on to what they knew, they refused to acknowledge what they didn't know. 
How is it possible that nobody said, well, he's different now. <laughs> How is it possible that no one questioned what might have happened before he arrived? But they were so bent on holding on to what they knew that there was no room in their cup for God to fill with something else. I am so convicted in, in our relationships with God, especially for those of you who have walked with the Lord for a long time. It is so easy for us to think we know all there is to know about Jesus. We know exactly what he did because we know the word. And if we know the word, then we know all there is to know. But oh my goodness, how we've missed it. How often we have not made room in our cups for God to fill because we've thought we've known all there is to know. But my brothers and sisters, if I can tell you what any of my degrees have taught me, it is the fact that the more you learn, the less you know. In an age where knowledge is accessible to everyone, where Siri or Alexa can literally tell you everything you need to know, in a time when ChatGPT can write every answer for you, can I just tell you there's still some things we don't know about God? There are still some mysteries of the Spirit that we don't know. As I know that you are knowledgeable, I know you are well-studied and well-versed, but can I just tell you, there are some things you don't know about Jesus. And might that be an invitation to the mystery of God? Our lives are lived in such black and white ways. We, no, I won't speak for you. I can be so controlling, and I want to know everything that's going to happen right in the time that it happens. But God says, if you could just acknowledge what you don't know, I can bring you into the mysteries of the divine, the mysteries of the Trinity, the mysteries of the spirit where God ebbs and flows as God wills. Don't you want to know the mysteries of God? My grandmother said, if you really got to know God, you'd find out he's so high, you can't get over him. He's so low, you can't get under him. He's so wide, you can't get around him. Our God is so big and so rich and so wide, we could spend the rest of our lives getting to know him, and that still wouldn't be enough. Our God is so great that even if we spent every second of our lives worshiping in his presence and reading his word, we still wouldn't catch a glimpse of who he was. Moses lets us know in Exodus, God is so great and so big that no man can see him and live. Moses had to be shoved inside of the cleft of the rock and just by the backside of God passing by, his face shone for 40 days. This is the mystery of God, but we cannot get to know who God is until we're willing to acknowledge God. I don't know. You are so great and you're greater than anything I could know. You are so good and you're better than good, better than any good I could ever understand. You are so powerful and more powerful than I could ever understand. God, I think I see the path, but since I don't know what you know, I want you to create the path for me. God, I see a way and a way that this could work out, but since I don't know all there is to know, I want you to make the way for me. Can you imagine what your life would look like if you acknowledge what you didn't know about God? The text lets us know God wants to know us and wants to be known. But first, we have to acknowledge what we don't know about him. But secondly, if we really want to see who Jesus is for ourselves, we must learn to understand Christ in community. Understand Christ in community. One of the mistakes that the people of Nazareth made 
was refusing to understand Jesus through the eyes of the people around them. Jesus was in the midst of his journey, and he had already traveled to cities not far from Nazareth. Yet he made a statement that a prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and by his own home people. Jesus recognized that the people who think they know you best will hold on to a story about you even when there's another story that's begging to be told. Jesus was the one who performed miracles in nearby cities, healing the sick, recovering sight to the blind, restoring the outcast, and even raising the dead. Jesus was the one who by his miraculous power was able to do what physicians and priests could never do. Wherever he went, his name went before him and everyone crowded around to hear his words. Everyone brought their sick to be healed. Everyone understood that Jesus could do the impossible. Everyone, except for the people in Nazareth. If they had only been receptive to the stories of others, maybe they would have had a better understanding of who he was and maybe they could have received a few miracles themselves. The life of a Christ follower was never meant to be lived in isolation. A life with Jesus cannot be bound by your experience with God alone. Because if your understanding of God is limited to your experience with God, then you have no idea who God really is. <laughs> I feel like saying that again. If your life with God is limited to your experience with God alone, then baby, you have no idea who God really is. You see, there, there is a, there's something to be said about the fact that the people in Nazareth didn't listen to their neighbors. If they had listened to their neighbors, they might have seen a picture of Christ that was different from the Christ they knew. If they had listened to what God had done for other people around them, they might have been open to God doing the same thing for them. If they had listened to the stories, they might have been able to say what God has done for you, he's able to do for me too. You see, when I was growing up, I, I was, I'm a preacher's kid. My dad was a pastor. And in our small church, we used to have something called testimony service. And in testimony service, people would stand before the congregation. They would often take the microphone and they would share what God had done for them. And I'm sorry to say we had to end testimony service because Brother John never knew when to end his portion of the testimony. And because we were so very Christian nice, nobody really knew how to take the microphone in a way that wouldn't be offensive. So after 25 minutes of Brother John telling us about his arthritis and about his, you know, sore fingers and about his diabetes and high sugar and everything else, you know, after a while we had to say, well, I'm sorry, we can't do this because it started to disrupt things. But what I remembered about testimony service is something happened when people began to tell other people what God had done for them. Something happens when you hear from somebody else what God has done for them. Because while my experience of God is in one lane, when I hear what God has done for you, my image of God is that much greater. And in testimony service, what happens is people who are coming in with sickness get to heal about, hear about how God healed somebody and their faith is encouraged. People coming in with stress or anxiety get to hear about how God delivered someone and brought them peace and it brings them some faith as well well 
Revelation tells us that we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And what happens is as you give your testimony, you are strengthened and others are as well. This right here is community. Those of us in this place, those watching online, God has made us community. And let me tell you, I need to hear from you what God has done for you. Because there might be some things in my life that I can't see. There might be some limitations, some blinders that I have that I can't get beyond. But when I hear from you, then my faith is encouraged and my blinders are widened. And then I get to see a little bit more of who God is. I want you to know that today, maybe even before you get to your home. God wants you to tell somebody what he has done for you. Because when you tell what the Lord has done for you, then you can strengthen someone's faith. Then you can encourage your own heart. And then, then we'll be positioned to see more of Christ than we could ever see by ourselves. Church, God is calling us to know him. And what a beautiful invitation that is. And if we want to know Jesus, we, yes, first have to acknowledge what we don't know about him. Secondly, we have to see Christ in community. But lastly, if we really want to know the mysteries of the Lord and accept the invitation to know Jesus, we've got to learn to exercise some desperate faith. If I was in a Baptist church, I'd say, somebody say, desperate. (laughs) You guys are good Baptists. I'm impressed. (laughs) We have to learn to exercise desperate faith. In verse 5, Mark tells us that Jesus could do no miracles in Nazareth except to place his hands on a few of the sick and heal them. This was a town that was filled with people who knew Jesus and didn't believe him. This was a city whose biblical reputation would label them as the ones who missed out. This was a town who was filled with doubters, and yet in the midst of the doubt, in the midst of the unbelief, Jesus was still able to lay his hands on a few people and bring them healing. Surrounded by all of these people who didn't get it, the Bible tells us there were some who did. What was it about these people that made them candidates for healing? What was it about them that made them able to experience miracles in the way that nobody else in the city could? I suggest to you, it was simply their desperation. It was their desperation that set them apart. They may not have had notable faith like the Gentiles who were able to see Jesus walk on water or the disciples who watched him in the midst of that storm. They may not have had remarkable faith that drove people to break down the roof and lower their sick so that Jesus could touch them. No, I believe that there was nothing more than just a mustard seed of desperate faith. And if you were to hold a mustard seed in your fingers right now, it would look just like this. They had not grandiose faith. They did not have faith that was worth mentioning for many, many generations. They had a mustard seed of desperate faith. And because they were desperate for Jesus, he was able to do for them what he couldn't do for anybody else. 
My friends, if we are to come to know this miraculous, mysterious Jesus who is bidding us to come into his presence, you and I must learn to exercise our desperate mustard seed faith. And I'm so glad that our faith doesn't have to be remarkable because sometimes I've got doubts. I'm so glad that our faith doesn't have to be miraculously huge because my faith isn't always huge. But I'm glad to know that Jesus can use a desperate heart like mine to hear the prayer of my woundedness and come and respond. And our scriptures are filled with examples of people who were desperate for God and it was their desperation that led to their transformation. The woman at the well was desperate to run away from people trying to flee from a life that she was not a, she was not proud of. But when she met Jesus at the well, what started as desperation led to transformation and she began to tell everyone what the Lord had done for her. The woman in Mark 5 with an issue of blood crawled on her hands and knees risked being trampled by the crowds but because of her desperation she was able to touch the hem of his garment and her desperation led to transformation which led to her healing and Jesus called her daughter there are so many examples of the desperate boy who was plagued by a legion of demons and encountered Jesus and was transformed. Of the desperate Mary and Martha whose brother had died and they ran to Jesus with no place else to go. But I don't have to go to scripture to talk about desperation. I'm bold enough to believe there are some desperate believers here in this house. Somebody knows what it's like to be desperate to see your children saved. That you cry out all night long asking God for his deliverance somebody knows what it's like to have pain in your body and a little bit of desperate faith to ask God to heal you and somebody came in these doors today like me desperate to see the presence of God and to you God says I'll take your desperation I'll match it with my presence and I will transform you so that you will never be the same and I'm glad to tell you today that we serve an amazing God we serve a miraculous God we serve a powerful God and he's not asking us for something he does not give us. Jesus does not ask us for desperate faith without demonstrating his desperation for us. You see, what, what led God to send his own son into the darkness of this world except that he was desperate for us. What led the Savior to be surrounded by the evil of our world and our sinful nature, except that he was desperate for our salvation? What led Jesus to die, except that he was desperate to see us reconciled with the Father? And we serve a God whose passion for us is so great. His desperation for us is so strong that he says, I will give my life so that you might know me and be close to me. God loves us so much that his desperation for us didn't end with the cross. 
his desperation for us did not end with resurrection. He is so desperate for us, so desperate to know us and for us to know him as he is, that he says one day, one day I will come and bring you to myself and we shall be with the Lord forever and we shall see him face to face and God will wipe every tear from our eye and there'll be no more sorrow and there'll be no more sin and there'll be no more war and there'll be no more heartache and we will be with the Lord forever. God is desperate for us. And what he calls from us is a willingness to let go of what we think we know. A willingness to know him through the eyes of others. And a desperation that might lead us to places we've never been before. But I've come to the end of myself and I've realized the best is yet to come. When you come to the end of yourself, you realize that no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, neither has it entered into the hearts and minds of those who love him what the Lord has in store for you. God has miracles in store for you. God has miracles in store for you. And all you have to do come to the end of yourself, shed your skepticism, and embrace the God of miracles as he wants to be known. Holy Spirit, we have no words because of your presence. We confess to you, God, that we have had our doubts. We have struggled with our skepticism. Indeed, God, we confess that we've made idols out of our skepticism, thinking ourselves to be mature. We confess that we have lived our lives thinking that we knew you, when in fact there was so much more that you wanted us to see about you. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would allow us to see and to know you for who you are. Our feeble minds can't understand it all, but God, open our minds to know you more. Our feeble hearts cannot receive all of you, but open our hearts to receive all that we can absorb. Our feeble ears, God, aren't able to hear your voice, but give us strength that we might hear what we can and let our desperation for you lead to a transformation, not only of ourselves, not only of our families, but of our church, of our community, of our cities, our states, our nations, and we're bold enough to ask that our desperation lead to a transformation of this world until you come for us again. We thank you, God. We praise you and we thank you for who you are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Let everyone say, amen. amen.